As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined, as ever, by my dad, John Wyatt. How are you, John? Hello, yeah. Looking forward to the conversation. And excitingly today, we've got a third person to join to the discussion. Uh, We've got Dr. Sarah Foote. Um, Sarah, we're really delighted to have you joining the podcast. Could you um, introduce yourself a little bit and and explain uh, what you do when you're not recording podcasts? Um, Hi, Tim uh, and John. Thanks for having me on. So um, I'm a palliative medicine doctor. Um, So I'm a a qualified doctor and um, I am working in the east of England training to be a palliative care consultant so I rotate around different hospitals and hospices uh, doing palliative care looking after people uh, as they come towards the end of their life currently working in uh, an acute hospital in Essex. And Sarah you were telling us just before we came online that it, um, you, you've been absolutely in the midst of, of caring for patients uh, today you're actually in the hospital at the moment uh, what, what's your day been like so far what have you been up to? Oh, um, so we always begin uh, today the day with a MDT meeting on a Wednesday where we just update uh, amongst MDT. The... What's what's that oh, mean? So... <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, so it's a multidisciplinary team meeting. So uh, for us, that means um, meetings between nurses and doctors. Uh, often, members of the chaplaincy team and the counselling team all come together to discuss the patients that are in the hospital um, and patients that are in our local hospice because we're all one big team even though we're in slightly different geographical locations just to update each other Um, so we did that and then I saw the patients in the ward and then it's just sorting out jobs um, for the patients things like liaising with oncology teams so cancer teams um, helping get patients uh, get procedures done get patients home um, sorting out changing their medications that sort of thing. Could we just take a brief step back? Because I mean, I'd love to hear dig into a bit more about what your day to day job is like. But some people listening might not have never heard the word palliative care. Could you give us a kind of brief elevator pitch about what is palliative care? Yeah, so palliative care is uh, caring for patients who have a diagnosis, um, which will be the the kind of illness that could potentially end their life so uh, cancer is a really common one um, and it's and it was traditionally uh, where lots of palliative care can happen but actually we care for any uh, any patient who um, has an illness that um, may end their life so um, patients with lung disease or heart disease um, some patients with uh, dementia and any of anything that um, you know you're in you're unwell um, and we can come in at any point I think often people think palliative means um, hospice or that means uh, the very end Um, actually we like to do um, a lot of parallel care which is where you might have a a specialist team looking after you for example the cardiologists look after heart disease um, but we come in as well to help manage um, your your kind of other needs uh, things like managing your symptoms or planning for the future. So that's so you might I think a lot of people imagine that you switch to palliative care once you've abandoned efforts to to cure the illness but that's actually not the case necessarily. Yeah definitely not um it's one of the challenges of working in palliative medicine is uh, people think once everyone else has failed then we go down the palliative route and that can be 
our, our colleagues can sometimes think that they think that patients should only come to us when they have um, that when they can't do any more from their end. Um, that's that's really changing. It's one of the exciting things about palliative medicine is that uh, we do things like joint clinics um, and um, early referrals where once someone's got a certain diagnosis, we we get start getting involved early. And, and sometimes early involvement is just saying hello when things aren't, you know, when you don't need us, but at least you said hello rather than when you, you do need us. We're a friendly face then, someone you recognise. So why on earth would you choose to go into this branch of medicine? I mean, when you think of all the other things you could be doing, the more positive and more encouraging people getting better and saving lives, why on earth would you choose to go into a branch of medicine where you know that pretty well everyone's going to die? Do you know, I think the first time I told my husband I wanted, who's not a doctor, I want to do palliative medicine, that was exactly what he said was, why would you do that? And uh, it's a good question. I think people think it's really depressing uh, because ultimately everyone dies. But actually, um, there's a few things about it I really love. So um, firstly, I think when you're coming towards the end of your life, you potentially could be quite vulnerable. Um, you've got really hard decisions to make. You're often quite unwell. So making big decisions is actually really difficult. Um, as a patient, for doctors and nurses, it, things can be quite complicated and and, and like healthcare professionals can feel quite lost. Um, and so as a palliative care physician, you can really advocate for patients at the end of their life. You can you know, really... Um, stand up for what's important for them, um, whether it's getting out of hospital or attending an event or sorting out a certain symptom above other things. Um, so I think that's that's really a, a really great part of it. Um, I'm, and I've already talked about the MDT or the multidisciplinary team meeting. Um, some branches of medicine, you only really talk to other doctors um, most of the time. Well, we all sort of think the same. And actually one of the interesting parts of palliative is you get to work with um, nurses and counsellors, um, therapists, so like physiotherapists, occupational therapists, you all have to come together um, and really work together as a team because it's not just about fixing the one physical, you know, problem this patient has. It's about um, helping the patient work out what's the most important thing for them and, and working out what you can do as a team. Um, and that's... and. I think that leads on to the, the, the real best bit about palliative is um, I'm not just there to fix your broken leg or, um, you know, uh, cure your infection. Um, so I'm not just like, oh, this patient's got a chest infection here, are the antibiotics. It's You really get to find out much more about um, who you're looking after because it's so crucial. Um, you know, if you're a patient who's got a big family and a big house and lots of support and you're feeling very happy at home and actually you want to spend time at home and that's really important to you, that's something I need to know about. Um, or I need to know that if the thing that you want more than anything is to see your dog, I need to know about that. Or, you know, if you're trying to sell your business because you've had this diagnosis and that's really weighing you down because you're stuck in hospital with rubbish internet and no phone signal you know these are the things that matter to our patients and I, I love that aspect of palliative care it's much more holistic um in that we get to know the whole patient yeah and what about the the spiritual aspects because I I know that that's also quite a, a big deal isn't it in, in in palliative care perhaps surprisingly you know people would think that medicine really shouldn't be very interested in in spiritual things or in religion but what, what's your experience of that yeah, actually, it's one of the other great things as a Christian um, that you come to palliative care and it's uh, one of the areas of medicine where we're really encouraged to talk about it. So um, the NHS can feel quite secular at times if you're a Christian. Um, we've got to be really careful not to um, upset patients um, you know, we've, in a secular organisation, it's important. Um, patients are in a really vulnerable position. Um, so if we're talking about faith, it needs to be the right time for the patient and in the right way. Um, and that is the same. That's the true in palliative medicine. But actually, we're actively encouraged to find those right times um, and right places because it's it's important for patients if they've got um, spiritual needs, um, if they are hoping that their own um, uh, say pastor can come in uh, or imam then we need to be helping them sort that out and and, and um, sorting that if people have got needs around death um, in terms of um, seeing uh, someone from their religion just before they die um, or having someone come just after death or or sorting things out um, so for example um, in islam um, patients need to be buried quite swiftly so um, helping patients get all that 
planning in place um, is really important. So actually, we're, we're encouraged to be talking to our patients about this so that we know. And we do that in a, um, a gentle fashion. Some patients, when you ask them if they have spiritual needs, will just say, well, I'd like a pint of Guinness. Does that count? And I'm like, yes, that counts. That's what's important to you. And other people go, oh, I can have someone come and pray with me. And they don't know that we have a, a hospital chaplaincy team. And that's really easy for us to, you know, refer to the chaplaincy team to come and um, spend some time with the patient. And chaplaincy love that. That's what they're here for. And do you not ever feel like I didn't sign up for this? I was trained in the body, not in the spirit. And I should just pass off all these these weird kooky requests to the to the trained kind of religious professional in the chaplain? Oh, I don't think I've... Uh, it's a good, good question because I don't think I've ever thought that. Maybe um, maybe it's because I'm Christian and I, I know that for me personally, um, my faith will, will be really important as I come to the end of my life. Um, uh, you know, I, I, um, my father-in-law is a vicar and I know he's done last communion with family members and they've really really valued that um and I know when he goes to visit parishioners and just having someone pray with you as you come to the end of your life is just so so valuable and I I'm really happy if a patient is Christian and says they want someone to pray with them um I will often at that point offer up and say well actually I'm Christian would you like me to pray with you and, and that's particularly if I have a concern about the chaplaincy team getting there in time or just because I've got a good rapport with patients sometimes it's nice you know for someone they know rather than for someone random to turn up and pray um I no, I don't think I don't think I do see it as as kooky or strange I think it's because I all I care about is what's important to the patient um and uh, yeah I think I'm fairly open-minded I'm I'm racking my brains I'm sure I've been asked things that I thought maybe was a bit strange but if that's what's important to them that's what's important to them so it's important to me and what's your experience overall do you find it I mean there must be an aspect of watching people die and being involved you know with grieving relatives and um which must be quite stressful and 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 heavy to carry as well as the good aspects what what do you find the most difficult part of your job i think i've been reflecting on this recently actually um and i think the the difficulty actually comes when the planning isn't in place the relationship's not there um and that happens often in a slightly more acute setting um as well as doing palliative medicine, I, I do have to still do um, what we call general internal medicine or acute medicine. Um, and actually, I bring to acute medicine the uh, my palliative skills and, and almost on any... Um, so as an acute medicine doctor, we see the new patients coming into hospital. They come in, they see A&E, and if you're an adult, you don't need surgery, but you're coming to hospital, you're probably coming in under what we call like acute medicine. And lots of patients will on at least every shift i do doing that there'll be a patient coming in who is very unwell and is likely to die in quite a short time and trying to um, build rapport um, have difficult conversations um, and then do the best thing for the patient in what is, can be quite constrained circumstances you know in an a and e department um, on a shift where i know i'm never going to see this patient again um, and i'm trying to put plans in place for a night shift i think those are the ones um, that stick with me because i um it's the confidence of knowing that i've helped the patient as well as I can um, or just knowing that things sometimes life is just really really hard and awful and some people have um, suddenly become ill completely unexpectedly um, or sometimes people have been ill and they've they've known they're ill but then things take a real sudden turn um, and and things like when patients can't say goodbye to relatives um, or re and relatives don't get in in time um, or if they have um, symptoms as, as they die if they're in, in you know if it's all very sudden I think that that's when it's really hard um, as a doctor mm. and inevitably you know in my own clinical experience over the years you do see some absolutely appalling terrible things don't you and and and, and trying to find a way psychologically and, and spiritually to cope with that is, is at times difficult I mean what's your own experience of, of when you feel that you're personally taking the toll i often um you sort of drive home and um you think about this 
often often it will be more than one patient you know you seem to have a run of um patients dying and it just seems so overwhelming how overwhelmingly um difficult life can be and you know you'll meet perhaps people who are young or people who've had other things go wrong or people who've had multiple bereavements um and a real sense of crying out to god you know um just it's okay to just be like, why, why mm. is this? Mm. And, you know, I know we live in a fallen world, um, but uh, um, sometimes you can't see any, you know, there's no, there's no obvious good in a situation. Um, and, um, and also being thankful to God, I find really helpful actually to um, thank God for um, just his generous grace and, and goodness and, um, and trusting and having a real trust in God's judgment, in God's love for us all. Um, I, sometimes I wonder how my colleagues who don't have a faith um, uh, manage the burden of of seeing um, illness and death um, and not having a sense that there is a God in control of it all and a God that who who really loves us. Mm, um, yeah. I, I mean, people do, you know, we have coping in terms of um, counselling sessions, um, in terms of, you know, uh, people do things like mindfulness, making sure that you're making time for yourself. But um, that overwhelming sense of just knowing that God has got this um, is a real comfort. Is there a kind of Christian ethos that lies behind some of the philosophy of palliative care? Because it seems slightly distinct from perhaps, the, as you say, the more secular kind of humanistic, materialistic ethos that runs through kind of general uh, medicine. Yeah, so palliative is quite a new specialty um, in the world of medicine. New is about 60 years old, um, but we're, we're still quite a new specialty. And actually it was founded by a Christian um, lady, uh, Cicely Saunders. And um, she sort of came up with the idea of having a hospice somewhere where we would care for people. And she's got um, a great quote, which I'll, I'll say now, which um, I think really sums it up. So uh, she, this quote is, you matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life. We will do all we can not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. And I I think it really sums up palliative where it's all about um, loving the patient and um, and loving them for, for just existing, for just being a person. Um, and that's quite distinct from, I, I, I mean, you know, medicine is all about caring for people um, and it's about, it's generally about fixing things though. And we can't fix dying but we can come alongside you uh, and again I think that's a really uh, a Christian view is where we you know we're traveling this journey together um, and we aren't in control of it and I think our current society control is a really important thing for people it's something people really value um, and we can't control everything as a doctor I want to control it I'm always disappointed if I can't fix symptoms but what I can do is travel the journey with you and I think one of uh, Cicely Saunders' great conviction was that those last few hours, days, weeks of someone's life could actually be profoundly significant and, and rich and important. Um, it wasn't all just doom and gloom. I mean, that, that's really, isn't it? That's, that's why this quote, to live until you die. I mean, how, how, have you seen that personally in, in, in your own experience? I mean... Um away from my professional time uh, when my uh, husband's granddad was dying um my husband and i went to visit him um what turned out to be in the last 12 hours of his life and and we went to visit him in hospital um and he and he was a christian with faith and i asked him if he wanted us to pray together and he could just about say yes um and it was something like my husband is 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 christian as well and i think it's just something i needed to initiate because it was something I was more used to. I was more used to being in a room with someone who was so unwell. And we prayed together. And I remember the door opening and not really paying much attention. Um, but actually, it was another member of the family coming in who then prayed with us. And I didn't, I didn't really think much of it. But actually, that was a member of family who has potentially um, moved a little bit away from God in their relationship. Um, 
but there was something about that moment that that's precious moment where we all prayed together and that was a really important thing for the family to know that actually my husband's granddad did get a chance to to pray with one of his sons you know right right coming towards the end of his life um and then again in in our family um elderly relatives with dementia um dementia is a hard diagnosis you really you you know you lose control of who you are um it's it's scary for the patient it's scary for relatives um but again you actually um we've had really profound changes in relationships where um relationships have been formed and um nurtured and um reborn during during that time and uh certainly for me coming into my husband's family when we got married his grandmother couldn't attend our wedding because she was too unwell and we did um she was in a nursing home with a little um area where we could kind of do a, a ceremony and we went and did that the week after we got married and it was really really special and she was absolutely delighted and we've got a wonderful photo of her from that day and it's just a really precious memory um mm. that we have that we wouldn't have had otherwise um it's not all it's not always like that but there is um still really good quality time and actually patients often say that to me it's one of my I really want when I'm advocating for patients one of the things I want to do is be honest with them that I think time could be short that they they are dying because as doctors people often doctors often don't want to tell patients that no one wants to tell someone they're dying but if we withhold that information if we don't own it and say actually we do think this patient's going to die even though we're telling them we're trying to cure something for example um we take away their opportunity to have that um time with their family and um i've had patients say or relatives say to me thank you so much because we had a week together we had you thought he was going to die within a week or two and he did and we had a precious week of just wonderful time together and mm. I, th- I think that it certainly is my experience too that you know the the quality and the richness of time is nothing to do with the duration with how many days weeks months it's you know that just some short period minutes hours days can be so significant and particularly you know for those who remain I I think that my experience often isn't that it's it's the relatives you know because we we have to live we've watched this person this loved one die but now we have to live with what happened over those last few hours and days and 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 to be able to live with memories that yes wasn't that an amazing time we had together is, is really significant yeah it's something that i see as part of our holistic care is you as the patient are going to care about how your family are and so i need to care about how your family are um obviously my patients most important but it really matters to me that we particularly in these covid times um visiting is often very restricted um and recognizing that someone is dying is really important to allow um, more visitors to be able to come in um and it's certainly one of the things that really troubles me is if we miss that if if we don't get and we do we get it wrong because death is really unpredictable Mm. um and sometimes we don't do that and i'm really broken for the relatives who i know haven't had a chance to say goodbye and that was obviously something that was particularly painful for people during the worst of the covid pandemic we've been gone through here is that well certainly in the uk most hospitals kind of barred all visiting and so there were lots and lots of people who sadly did die without any family members able to to let alone a, a chaplain or someone able to come in and be by their bedside. I think there will be a real epidemic of um, bereavement within our country and, and around the world because of the huge numbers, but also because of that, because people weren't there, they couldn't see how their relative was um, and they couldn't be with them and they couldn't, just being with them is so important. Um, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking and um, something I hope we can perhaps prepare better for in future because we obviously have to keep people safe and social distancing is really important. Um, and I, I don't envy policymakers who made these decisions, but also I saw so many people who didn't get to say goodbye and it's just heartbreaking it's and 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 not even just goodbye but just that good time together those last laughs those last memories um and knowing that they're 
people want to be able to care. They want to be able to be by the bedside and make sure that their relative is, you know, well hydrated, that their lips are um, not dry, that they're not in pain, and they they all miss that. And I, um, it's heartbreaking, and um, I don't know how that's going to pan out. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I suspect that is going to be one of the long-lasting um, effects of the pandemic, um, not not the physical. Uh, effects of long COVID and all that, but actually the those psychological scars um, and what psychologists call a complicated grief. You know, there's the grief of of losing a loved one, but then there's all this complication of the fact that I couldn't be there and I missed out, you know, and I, I feel a failure and she died alone and all those kind of feelings um, to be worked through. Yeah, and then often um, uh, relatives will blame themselves not rightly um for you know did they catch covid because i was getting the food shopping and bringing it to them you know because i because often people would have covid you know multiple members of family at the same time and it is it's all just as you say um complex and and um i I, we we will will see the effects of that for years to come one of the things that really fascinates me to slightly move the conversation on is is you mentioned that palliative care is quite a, a modern phenomenon at least in the terms of the history of medicine. Um, how, how kind of widespread or well integrated is it into the rest of the NHS, at least the healthcare system we have here in the UK? Is it, is it, does every patient who wants it, do they have access to it or is it more patchy? No, I think it's fair to say it's more patchy. So um, I think because we traditionally have been quite cancer focused, um, we still see predominantly cancer patients. Um, so we often have very good links with cancer services. Um, we are increasing links with um, uh, services where uh, it's, you know, like kidney doctors, or renal services or, or cardiologists, um, lung doctors, um, but also we struggle to get to um, groups of patients that are harder to reach. So um, patients that perhaps have um, substances misuse um, or uh, substance addiction, or who might not have a permanent home um, or patients that um, anyone who's dying in a kind of non-standard way, um, we are not getting to them well enough yet. And it's definitely changing and it's definitely improving. Um, There's some really exciting projects reaching out to um, patients in um, homeless shelters um, there's lots of clinics like I said clinics being set up um, with uh, patients who are um, have say um, lung disease or, or kidney problems um, and it's certainly within the hospital setting it's still we need more of us there's uh, there's, there's um, not enough uh, doctors and nurses within the hospital so um, our colleagues don't fully understand what we can do so don't always refer at the right time um, we're quite a small specialty so for example in my current hospital there is only one consultant um, and me as the registrar so that's it there's only two doctors doing my um, specialty here in this hospital so we don't see uh, enough of our colleagues to help them understand when they should be referring um, and then hospices are uh, generally in the charitable sector sector so um it's quite a bizarre system if you thought about uh, say giving birth in this country you'd never dream you needed to go to a charity charity like run organization to give birth you just go to a hospital um but for some re- well for, for good reasons traditionally um the charity sector has picked up as the hospices but that means it's quite patchy because it is you know where someone has thought to build a hospice and then there's a charity to help run it um and that means that it's not being kind of commissioned and fairly laid out yeah i think it's really one of the bizarre things about the uk system is that palliative medicine and palliative care is in this rather cinderella type subject and actually there's a there's a kind of tragic comic uh, aspect to all this and that is that the nhs allocates funding um in a in a very sort of rigorous Uh, utilitarian way which is based on something called qualies which stand for quality adjusted life years so what you do is you calculate how many life years your treatment is going to buy Um, and then the more life years your treatment buys the more money will go into that area of, of 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 care and of course the thing about palliative care is that the is that it's very expensive and yet people only live for 
for days or weeks or months. So in other words, it doesn't buy any life years at all. So the whole basis on which um, funding within the NHS is directed just doesn't work for palliative care. It has to be commissioned in a completely different way. And I think that is part of the reason why it, it, it is massively underfunded. Yeah, the, putting the, uh, we're just not financially, it doesn't make any sense. It is all about what is actually important to people and it is important to care for you. Whilst you're still alive, we need to care for you uh, and we have to advocate for that. Do you think it, there's positives in having charities? I imagine many of them still quite Christian in origin, at least. You know, it feels like most hospices are called Saint something or other, kind of betraying their Christian origins. Do you think that's really a, a good thing to have to kind of undergird the Christian origins of palliative care? Yeah, I think I think there's probably positives and negatives. Um, it's just as with uh, primary schools, people often associate um, uh, Christian care with being a good thing that they know someone is, is just going to care for them because that's what they do because they're Christian. Um, I think it, and actually the reality is, is whilst lots of hospices were originally um, Christian in foundation, um, people of all faiths and none work in them now. And again, they will always have access to chaplaincy um, support, but they, you know, if you if you don't have a faith, you're still very welcome. And actually that can be uh, something that can put people off. So I've worked in an area um, before I went into palliative medicine, but I worked in general medicine in an area where uh, it was quite a small Christian population and a the hospice was a St something. Uh, and that used to really put off uh, our patients um, of some, some of our patients were, were just really put off by it. Um, and trying to explain that barrier to to explain it's just it is a name um yes traditionally the hospice was run by nuns but actually now there's you, you don't need to have any faith it's not going to be pushed on you we are just there to care for you can be really really challenging particularly actually again as a as a specialty um you know you can be sort of a white doctor in the middle of an area where you just you don't look like any of the patients um and trying to speak the same language um and i don't just mean kind of language but just being you know being able to explain things and them trust you can be a real challenge so um i i love it i love that christians went you know we need to sort this out end of life care we need to set something up i also want all my patients to have access to end of life care and i'm always really sad if people don't trust the sort of name hospice hmm. i suppose in trust in your profession if your specialism is 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 vital in any kind of medicine but even more so for palliative care you really need to have that that vulnerable open honest trusting relationship between physician and patient Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Um, uh, you'll be obviously even more aware than I am but but here in the UK there was a renewed push to try and introduce a form of assisted dying uh, just last year last autumn uh, in in parliament um, there was a there was a bill was introduced 
to the House of Lords. Um, John, you did some kind of work around this. Do you want to briefly explain what that bill proposed and what kind of response it found? Sure. So it's just by way of background. Here in the UK, at the moment, it's completely illegal for a doctor uh, or anyone else to deliberately, intentionally kill someone or hasten their death. So although it's entirely legal and appropriate to stop treatment, life-sustaining treatment, if everyone agrees that that's the right thing to do, uh, the the current law draws a, a very clear line between that and intentional killing using lethal poisons. Um, and what is being proposed is that the law should be changed here in the UK, as in it indeed has in many countries across the world, um, to allow doctors to uh, prescribe um, lethal medications for patients who, with a, a, who meet particular criteria. They have to be competent, in other words, legally aware of their decisions. They have to be uh, give a voluntary and free uh, desire to to kill themselves, uh, that to, to feel their lives is not worth living, and they have in the UK law proposed that they had to have a terminal illness with less than six months to live, and so there was debate as to whether to legalise um, what was called assisted dying, doctors giving lethal poisons to terminally ill patients, and um, I, I was involved along with a number of other people in trying to oppose this um, legislation and um, we listened to what was a very high quality debate uh, which, which went on in the House of Lords uh, over the space of an entire day. I think there were over 100 contributors, um, some arguing passionately for uh, changing the law, some arguing passionately against. Um, but what I found very striking and and also rather disturbing was the number of, to be honest, rather elderly um, peers who who recounted stories of their friends or relatives or people close to them who died, who clearly had an appalling death. Uh, sometimes they described people screaming out in agony. They said they pleaded with with the doctors or the nurses to do something and the, and the professional said no we're not allowed we can't give any more drugs and there were these repeated stories gave the impression that um, palliative medicine as it exists today is pretty powerless uh, when it comes to controlling people's pain and symptoms at the end of life and I just wonder whether you got that impression Sarah and, and how you responded to that yeah it's it's really really hard because um you hear these stories of people dying in in pain and um miserable and it's heartbreaking and whatever side of the debate you're on that's the sort of first response and i, d I don't doubt they're happening and i think um where we've had the health and social care bill more recently actually recognizing that as a, as i said last week that palliative care isn't currently accessible to everyone that should be one of our first focuses is is making sure people do have access to palliative care because things like pain is actually not one of the more difficult things that we manage um it not everyone dies in pain and it's certainly also i think something to remember is we have these awful stories and and it is heartbreaking but it's also not not common it's not the the reality I, I see lots of patients die and lots of patients die really quite comfortably um and that's because they've had access to the right palliative care they've um you know been supported in their physical um pain relief um but they've also been supported in um their their emotional and and psychological well-being um supported with um spiritual care and that's something that is very achievable and i guess there will always be some exceptions but actually caring for someone in a in a loving fashion um with all the um all the medicines, um, all the things that we have now in in the modern day, 
we can help people to, to die comfortably and die well. Yeah, I mean, one of the impressions I have is that the the, the general lay understanding about um, people suffering at the end of life is that the principal reason why people suffer at the end of life is because of physical pain. It's because of overwhelming agony uh, created by the disease, by cancer or or whatever it is. And um, And I think what is understood by people and certainly matches my own experience is that actually that physical pain by and large is relatively easy to control with modern uh, methods modern drugs modern uh, techniques of of, of 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 controlling pain what is much more common but also much more difficult is these other types of pain psychological pain a relational pain whether a really broken uh, damaged uh, relationships uh, and also spiritual or existential pain people feeling a sense of guilt or a, f- a sense of the meaninglessness of life um, uh, and and it's often these kind of issues which are the real source of suffering as people come to the end of their lives um, does that fit with your experience Sarah? Yeah I think there's often a lot of fear around uh, pain and symptoms and I think that's because as a society we don't uh, see people die um, you know we've really medicalized it it happens in hospitals it happens away um, from homes and so people don't get to uh, see a normal death I've I've, I've had uh, relatives pull the emergency buzzer when someone's taking their last breaths because they've just not seen it before and they're not confident with what's going on um, and then actually the, the the real difficulties or the harder things to manage are um people who've got broken relationships and don't know how to um you know aren't going to be able to have another conversation with someone because they they can't um, manage it um or people who are really scared of of losing control or being dependent um that's something that's that's quite common um um as you say people who uh, angry, uh, understandably so. You know, why is it me? Why have, why am I the one that's dying? You know, I've done everything right. Um, is it because I, you know, I smoked, um, or is it? And and you know, be people will question things that have absolutely not. You know, I say smoking as an example, but actually, uh, I had a patient die recently, and and they thought it was because they'd smoked. And I was like, it's, it's not related. It really isn't. I mean, I suppose smoking's not good for you, but in that case, it it, it wasn't related, and that's that's harder um, and that's where time with people um, being able to listen I often think of palliative medicine our kind of super skill is just being able to listen to people um, and then being able to share their troubles can be really helpful one of the things the people who advocate for changing the law often say is that there is going a huge untapped demand from the public for this and there are various surveys that suggest that when you phrase the question in a certain way you know upwards of 80 percent of people agree that there should be the option for doctors to prescribe kind of life-ending drugs in all various things in your experience is, is it common for patients who are dying to kind of request that kind of currently illegal intervention from you as their physician no it's not common at all and um i don't think so first of all, I think um, we often think, I think if you if you word the question to people who haven't considered the issues and say, well, if someone else is in pain, would you want them to have the option of, of ending their life? Um, you think, well, yeah, you know, why would I want someone to experience pain when we could, we could stop it? Um, and if you haven't considered the issues, I think that it's an understandable response. Um, the reality is, is actually, um, there's two things. Sometimes patients will say to me, they just want their life to be over. Um, sometimes they say it and hope that in some way I can assist their death. And uh, often that is um, said by people who might be at the very end anyway. They kind of sort of say they've had enough of life. And actually we find they die quite a short time later. And I think there's a sort of... Um, 
our people often talk about battling cancer and trying to you know make the most of everything and sometimes you do just get very tired of it all as you come to the end um, and actually as long as those patients are comfortable um, and loved and reassured that we're not extending their life that we're not now doing anything that's going to prolong anything they that that can bring a real comfort and to know that they won't be alone um also, patients can say it when they're in pain. You know, um, if you can think about a time when you've been in absolute agony, the things you'd have said to make it stop. And if you've got something that you're dying of anyway, you know, you'd want it to stop. Um, patients have sometimes come into hospital like that. And actually, with good pain relief or good symptom management, I have seen that turn around. I've seen patients cry and beg me uh, to end their life. And actually... One guy particularly I remember was just miserable and within uh, two or three days was crying with relief that he was going home to spend time with his wife um, because we'd managed his symptoms and actually they were quite straightforward and he got to go home and have good time with her. Um, so I think that's one aspect of it in terms of the people that ask but then you have all the other people who don't ask who do just want every minute they're alive to live as well as they can do and are actually really scared really scared that um we're going to make assumptions about their life um that as 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 doctors we've quite written them off um one of my patients every time i frown in her presence she thinks i'm writing her off and i'm like no i'm just thinking i'm just thinking of how we're going to sort out this problem i'm not writing you off um because she because because once people have got the label of a palliative diagnosis they worry that we, we're going to give up on them um, and reassuring them that actually no that's, that's just this is only where my job begins is really important um, and then we meet the patients who or, or families where as doctors we have to discuss what are called do not um, attempt resuscitation so DNAR discussions and that's something we do uh, is separate from palliative care that is a discussion we do when um, we are concerned that if a patient's heart were to stop um, we wouldn't try to get it started again because we wouldn't didn't think we don't think it will be successful and it will cause them harm and it won't give them a dignified death. Um, I say this because as doctors we are really bad at having these conversations. We can often think we've done a really good job, but actually patients come out of these conversations terrified that we're not going to look after them properly. We're not going to care for them, um, and that's DNAR, which we're quite familiar with um but that can really break down the doctor patient relationship and i worry that with assisted dying a big concern is it will really break down the trust with patients and doctors because patients won't know whether we're actually pursuing assisted dying or whether that's what we think is best because why on earth would you live with you know their symptoms or their life um and it it will, it will undermine that trust they have in us yeah, it's certainly one of my great concerns as well, because as you say, to be able to, you know, when you're so desperately vulnerable and, and you feel out of control, you desperately want to be able to trust this professional and, and believe that they are genuinely acting in your best interests. And uh, the worry that actually they have a vested interest, you know, that, that they've just come from another patient where they actually help them die and that that might change the way that they, they treat you, uh, I, I, I think is, is, is very strong. And I, I'm very proud of the fact that we can say, you know, the medical profession is the one profession which is totally dedicated to protecting and preserving life. And, and you should be able to feel totally confident when you're in the care of a, of a medical professional that they're not going to try and get rid of you, not going to try and, and end your life prematurely. I was going to say there's been quite a lot of debate within the medical profession certainly here in the UK about what doctors kind of stance should be on on these attempts to introduce assisted dying um and as as I understand it the British Medical Association which is the kind of professional body for for doctors uh changed its stance in your experience do palliative care doctors kind of tend either direction pro or anti um they can be pro or anti, but the overwhelming majority are anti-assisted dying. Uh, and I think that's really um, important. If you look at the British Medical Association survey, obviously the, the kind of headline is that they went neutral. Um, 
actually, if you drill down into that, you see that a lot of the specialties, so the, the types of doctor that are pro-assisted dying are not those that are looking after those at the end of their life. It's um, people Doctors aren't very patient-facing anymore, so tend to work more in labs um, or in radiology departments, um, some types of surgeon. And then also groups of doctors, so uh, medical students, for example, who, uh, you know, we go back to when we began this session talking about how in an ideal world you sort of think, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Assisted dying, that helps the people who need it. You don't have to have it. I think it's really interesting that those are the groups that seem to be quite supportive, um, but actually palliative medicine doctors, um, GPs, uh, geriatricians, so those caring for elderly patients, um, cancer doctors, they were all much more against it. And I think that's because we can see that there's a better way, um, that actually there are some very vocal people in the in the news who, who really want it. But actually we know that if we get a chance to see people, if we get a chance to have these conversations, that there's so many things that we can manage and people just don't know what we can do. Um, and also we've got just this huge cohort of vulnerable people who won't know whether we're supposed to be, we're doing assisted dying. And um, and also we've got the, we'll have the patients who are coerced into it. And it might be that they are doing it because they think it's the right thing. I still, I get patients almost on a daily basis who say to me, oh, you shouldn't be wasting your time with me. And I'm slightly confused by that because my job title is, is palliative care. That is, I haven't got any other patients to say, I haven't got any that aren't dying. Um, Patients still have this real sense of, the, you know, the NHS is in need, that they've got, you know, there must be much more urgent um, operations to do or um, patients that you can fix and get out of there, um, beds that can be freed up, don't waste our time. Um, and that's really, really sad to think that people might think that's the right thing to do is to end their life. Um, people don't know what... Um, financial support there is so they don't know what care support they're entitled to so they worry that um, as they come to the end of their life they might have to pay for everything or they can't pay for it so they're just going to be home alone um, and then they sometimes think it's the best thing for their family because they don't want their family to be burdened by caring for them and that's um, really difficult to tease out as a doctor um, to really get to know patients and their families well enough to be completely confident that actually if a patient's saying they want to end their life, it's not because they're trying to do the right thing. And actually the right thing is to, you know, let themselves be cared for. Um, and, and we see that a lot. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, there's very strong evidence of this in places such as the state of Oregon in the USA, where a form of assisted suicide is, is allowed, is that surveys show consistently that, that one of the main reasons that why people give for going for the assisted suicide is fear of being a burden to others. So so there is a lot of evidence that if once this is legalised, um, many people will feel driven by a sense of, of being a burden to their loved ones and their relatives or even to the NHS to feel that the, the decent and the honourable thing to do is to kill myself. And I worry that... Um, with patients who seemingly have awful, you know, patients that say are bed bound or have symptoms that we just perceive as as doctors um, or as nurses and doctors that are just unbearable, we will feel the need to offer it. We need to make sure patients know that it's there. Um, but the reality is, is patients actually move around medical teams quite a lot in hospital. Um, they see lots of different people. So I worry they will get asked repeatedly. Um and they will hear of other people in the same situation who will end their life and and might feel that we sort of think, well, why have they not ended theirs? You know, we, I'd have done it in their position. Um, and because I think we see that at the beginning of life with some of the laws um, we have where um, we can really impress upon you know, how we feel, we think we would feel in a situation and can't believe that someone would react differently. And I, I worry that will really change the dynamic between um, patients and staff. Yeah, Tim, you um, did some research, didn't you, in Canada, which uh, legalised um, a form of medical killing, medical aid in dying, they call it there. And um, what, what was your experience there? Because you, you did some investigative journalism there, didn't you? 
Um, that's a little generous. <laughs> I did some research, shall we say. Yeah, and if you're interested in this topic, there is actually a whole podcast of Matters of Life and Death from, from October last year, which I'd recommend you go back and listen to, uh, which talks about um, the experience in Canada. But yeah, that they, they legalized uh, what they call medical assistance in dying or MAID um, back in 2016, I think it was, so about five, six years ago. And um, at the time the issue of palliative care was raised and and it was kind of confidently assured that no no these two systems could run in parallel and there'd be no reason why palliative care couldn't continue to be invested in as well as having a kind of euthanasia regime running in alongside it and then what has happened is what most of the 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 critics or indeed many in the palliative care sector warned which is that inevitably in a state-funded system uh, uh as you said sarah you know people will get repeatedly asked and and as that becomes more and more one of the kind of menu of options um it, it's going to increase in prevalence and so they've seen the numbers kind of steadily rise of people who have who have opted for made year on year uh, and indeed there is you know limited number of dollars in the system and and giving someone a lethal injection is significantly cheaper than than providing lengthy complex hospice care over many months and so even though no one intends to kind of think of it in financial terms when you have a cash strap system much akin to the nhs the experience there is that that many of the provinces who administer healthcare in canada have have found more of their resources going towards made because it's cleaner simpler efficient quick uh and that means that there are plenty of people out there who would love to have high quality kind of remedial hospice care at home or, or in, a, in an institution but they don't and so their options are kind of suffer in substandard op you know care without specialists like yourself and and high quality pain control or take the kind of quick quick way out which is a choice that no patient should really be given Your description of it, Tim, is just so sickening, like queen, click, quick, efficient. Like It's just, it's so sad, isn't it? To to think of resources being taken away from palliative care, not being able to care for people as we would want at the end of life um, and not valuing people for who they are. It just listening to you describe it makes me really sad. I think one of the things I found really uh, interesting but also troubling was that the idea that actually... Uh, palliative care and euthanasia could coexist on the same ward i mean basically you could choose you know you're you're dying you've got a terminal illness well you know if you want palliative care you know and you want to carry on being careful well we can provide that but if you decide your life is not worth living well we can end your life as well so so why couldn't um euthanasia and palliative care coexist in the same ward I think it goes back to that sense of safety and we talked about the relationship um, and the trust that you really need to have when you are totally vulnerable and the idea that you would be providing both in one ward uh, just seems ridiculous. Um, the idea that you know one patient we're trying to help you live as long as possible and the other patient we're ending your life because it's uh, you know the value judgment on that that we're just like yeah yeah it's fine it is you've got pain and it's not worth trying to to beat that um i think it would it will just undermine um trust and confidence and um and take away um time and energy um i think if doctors are making those decisions they will rightly and expectedly have to have, uh, I'm sure, second opinions. Um, there'll be lots of paperwork, lots of checkboxes, I'm sure. And that will, I think, of how the reality of a, a ward is run. You know, we do the ward round with a consultant. There are jobs to be done for each patient. And I can imagine the assisted dying. It's like, well, there's a big legal requirement over this, so we must make sure this is all ticked off, rather than that softer thing where it's just sit with the patient um, who's who's also unwell but not going through assisted dying or maybe spend a bit of time when their relative comes talking through what's going on that could be just diverted as 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 um emotional physical time resources or go to assisted dying sure no i i i can see that let me put you on the spot sarah because you know i've retired from clinical practice you're still at the early stages of your career uh it seems Humanly speaking, it's, it's quite likely that within the foreseeable future, some form of assisted suicide euthanasia is going to become legalised in the UK. 
And I wonder how you think uh, you and others might react to that. Um, do you think it will be possible to create um, euthanasia-free zones uh, within the NHS? Uh, what, what are your own thoughts on that possibility? Yeah, I think um, we really need to fight for it to be kept, well, a, for it not to happen, but if it does happen, for it to be kept out of the... I think out of the healthcare system, I I think patients need to be coming to see their doctor, and they know their doctor is not doing assisted dying. I think it's as you know they they need to know that they are uh, in a safe place and that they that they can express um, disappointment and frustration with life. And the next sentence isn't going to be, "Oh, would you like to uh, die by suicide?" Um, I would love to see that actually having places where assisted dying isn't allowed would be really promoted um, and um, celebrated that, you know, we have places as Cicely Saunders originally set up, you know, hospices where we go, we don't do that here. That's not what we believe in. We believe in you and we believe in supporting you. Um, I fear that to prevent there being a postcode lottery and to be in quotes fair to everyone, that actually hospices would be required to do it. And I can't see how that would work. Uh, and I certainly can't see how lots of people, lots of palliative doctors would work in that system. Uh, I certainly don't know how I would. I mean, one of the things it reinforces to me is the really imp important provision of conscience protection for doctors, nurses and other health professionals that, that they are protected uh, by law from being forced to participate, uh, to recommend, to advise patients about uh, killing uh, assisted dying or, and so on and um, again that didn't see although in theory that conscious protection is there in uh, Canada uh, Tim I think your experience was it wasn't necessarily that always that strong yes I was going to say unfortunately the kind of portents from Canada which you know obviously it's a different country and a different culture but I think there's a very similar kind of uh, medical ethos and, and spirit in, in its healthcare system it, it it is the case that the law is passed doesn't you cannot be compelled to actually do the the lethal injection yourself um but it's really patchy so i spoke to canadian doctors christians who in certain provinces um they were basically in conflict with their kind of provincial health board which said you don't have to physically do it but you do have to refer patients when asked and you have to basically be a cog in the machine pushing them towards assisted suicide and and there were doctors who said well that still contravenes my conscience you know i will say this is an option but i'm not going to refer you you'll have to go to another doctor who does that I'm, i make it clear from the outset that i don't i don't do made and that's been, they've been told that's not an option. That's not permissible. That's if you work in the state-funded provincial healthcare system, you have to take part. Which is, I think, yeah, really, really concerning. If if you were a doctor, the other thing I wanted to say, what you said, Sarah, about the palliative, um, how it would work with the hospice system is again, it's very similar because um, the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians came out very strongly against MAID when it was first legalised. Um, and said it was kind of antithetical to the whole ethos of hospice care to kill patients but in just a very short space of time only about five or six years that's you can see in the statistics that's great bad gradually been worn down so at the beginning almost all deaths uh, nobody died from maiden hospices they were either on hospital wards or at home but over time more and more patients got aware that they could ask for this and there was a kind of strong activist pro-euthanasia movement which was attacking doctors and institutions that refused them that that it's kind of been worn down um and uh, the last stats i saw which are only from 2019 so only four years after the law came in uh 21 percent now so that's one in more than one in five of all deaths uh from euthanasia were taking place in hospices um so i i agree with you that it's vital that we do keep the system separate but i have to say the the evidence from other countries is concerning whether that's going to be possible if it is legalized in the uk I'm really glad we got to talk today about um, we've been able to talk about palliative care and um, assisted dying. I am a really strong advocate that we need to be focusing on making sure that palliative care is available to all. Um, good palliative care is available to all. And uh, that says a lot more about us as a society if we 
are passionate about um, supporting people, loving people and helping people have a good death uh, than going for, as Tim decided, the efficient, clean, quick option of saying, oh, we can't help. We'll just go down the assisted suicide route. Um, thank you so much for having me today. Thanks, Sarah. It's been absolutely brilliant to have your insight and your reflections uh, from the ward itself uh, on, on matters of life and death today. We're really grateful for you taking the time. And thanks to everyone else for, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this pair of podcasts on palliative care with Sarah. Um, uh, as I mentioned, there's a there's a podcast that, that me and John did uh, about six months ago, which was discussing in more detail some of the research I did into Canada and also the, the proposed bill here in the UK uh, on assisted dying so you can look back in the feed and find that um, there's also some material on on john's website uh, that's johnwyatt.com if you just pop in assisted dying you'll be able to find that and i recommend to take a look um, as ever if you'd like to get in touch with us uh, we're always interested to hear from listeners um, you can drop us an email at molad m-o-l-a-d uh, molad at premier.org.uk um, but otherwise uh, we'll see you next week thanks very much for listening Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.